Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast, officially the 22nd most popular movie podcast in Egypt. Uh, we need to up our game in the Czech Republic. So uh, I am Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And Greg. Long time no see. So, just our standard intermission podcast, we've got six films to get through, so I guess we shall just start by going into American Utopia. And starting, at least as I mean to go on, there's not an awful lot to say about American Utopia, so I won't belabor this too much. It's a Spike Lee-directed capture of David Byrne's stage show slash album tour for his American Utopia album, with a good number of classic Talking Heads tunes interspersed throughout. As such, I suppose how much you enjoy this will depend on how much you like David Byrne and Talking Heads. Thankfully, I like them a lot, so I like this a lot. Uh, To be critical, as a stage show, it's perfectly engaging, with some interesting choreography for a live band, but to be honest, it's not adding a lot more than just listening to the album on Spotify. Uh, It's it's a straightforward recording, really, so not a spikely joint in any meaningful sense, so don't go expecting a huge amount of flourishes in the visuals. But that really is to be expected, given the nature of it, and does not detract from the enjoyable performance of enjoyable tunes. Two far more critical criticisms... Uh, there's one dancer slash backup singer that is, as again I suppose should be expected, playing very much to the back of the house, which unfortunately on film comes across as wild mugging and gurning, and more worryingly from a health perspective, and I know the Rona has consumed a lot of mind cheer in the prevention narrative of late, but let's not forget the horrors wrought by Veruca's an athlete's foot, <laughs> by which I mean for the love of God someone get these people some socks, Christmas is coming up, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, yes, I liked it, but I like David Byrne and Talking Heads, so I suppose I would do. Uh, yeah. Do you refer to the Ginger Man, Scott? That's the one, yes. yes um, <laughs> to be fair, he didn't bother me. <laughs> cool. I, I can see how he could be a bit, a bit um, over the top. He's a though. bit much. Yes. Um, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed American Utopia. Uh, similar, a lot of what I'll be saying in response to you, Scott, is what you've already said, but I like Talking Heads. And I like David Byrne, so um, it's no great surprise that they enjoyed yes. American Utopia. <laughs> but, and again, you've touched on this, I only became aware of this film because it's a Spike Lee film. And I only watched it, in truth, because it's a Spike Lee film. But I am left with a question, in which way is this a Spike Lee film? <laughs> and it's shot competently, certainly, including a number of interesting angles that you wouldn't see simply by being in the audience in the theatre. But I'm sure there must be an entire industry of people who film stage shows and concerts, many of whom could have produced this, and the look and feel of the American Utopia show on stage would have been dictated by David Byrne and his production designer, right? Mm. Uh, So I recommend watching it. The music is great. It's really entertaining. But with the exception of one particular section, I don't detect Spike Lee's stamp on this anywhere. Very odd. Well, I I too like David Byrne and I too like Talking Heads, but I have not seen American Utopia, so I have been bothered by precisely zero ginger people recently. (laughs) Just me. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't spoken to either of you guys for a couple of months, so you haven't bothered me for a while, Scott. Don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah, it's just it's just not a Spike Lee film, though, is it, Scott? Is it, that's the weird thing. No, it's a Spike Lee joint, Drew. Yes. I mean, yeah. Spike Lee has filmed a couple of um, stage shows before uh, that I haven't actually got around to checking out yet. They'd be on my list. But I wonder if, like, it's like this, there was just someone competent to point the cameras in the right place. I don't see how this is a Spike Lee film. <laughs> no, there's not a lot of... 
artistry on the capture. They've, they've pointed some cameras at the stage and they've got one overhead for a few shots. And, you know, the, it, it doesn't scream like it was requiring a lot of direction as much as it may have done just some editing later on. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is not really a Spike Lee film in any meaningful sense, but it's still enjoyable enough. So, silly. Huh. Shall we go onwards to On the Rocks then? Shall we? When is a relationship drama rooted in infidelity not a relationship drama rooted in infidelity? When it's an excuse to spend 90 minutes with Bill Murray in affable dad mode, that's when. (laughs) On the Rocks is the latest from Sofia Coppola, reuniting Murray and Rashida Jones, his co-star from 2015's A Very Murray Christmas. I can't believe that was five years ago now. That's nuts. As father and daughter in a somewhat slight tale of a marriage that is, well... On the Rocks. Jones's Laura is a writer suffering somewhat predictably from block, while her husband Dean, Marlon Wayans, is preoccupied driving the success of his Manhattan business and, Laura suspects, nobbing his PA Fiona. Initially dismissing her suspicions as a byproduct of her own frustrations, Laura finds her father Felix, Murray, and ageing Lothario himself, dumping fuel on the fire of her worst fears and employing his formidable network of contacts, both foreign and domestic, in unsolicited fashion to dig deeper into Dean's extramarital activities, such (laughs) as they may be. That which ensues might not be described as hilarity, nor outright comedy, but there is certainly plenty of levity in what turns out to be a surprisingly lightweight study of cross-generational insecurity. Despite her protestations, Laura becomes an all-too-willing participant in Felix's antics, joining her father on an adventure of sorts across Manhattan and ultimately to Mexico, an adventure which is part Hardy Boy's amateur detective antics, part reckoning with her father's own history of infidelity. I actually really like On the Rocks as an idea, and I like a couple of aspects in execution. Murray and Jones's chemistry goes down pretty easily, and for the most part, it's enough just to spend time in their company. Their relationship is entirely believable, and their motivations sympathetic, even if their occupations and circumstances reek of the kind of social naivety that could only come from someone who hasn't ever occupied what the rest of us might consider reality. Marlon Wayans acquits himself pretty well as Dean, imagine my surprise, displaying enough by way of likeable character traits that we desperately want him not to be playing the field but maintaining enough ambiguity that we might never really be sure unsurprisingly though it's mostly Murray's show and his kind of work is something he really inhabits now to an extent there's a real possibility he will ultimately be remembered by movie fans as much for this kind of character work as for his 70s and 80s comedy output Felix is perhaps annoyingly an incredibly charismatic guy and if he's mostly just Murray doing Murray then that's kind of all right because it's what the material requires the problem with On the Rocks for there is a big problem, is that this is the only check it really has to cash. As I said before, I really like the father-daughter road trip detective story as a concept, but Coppola's script makes way too little emotional investment to claim any kind of ultimate payoff. The complete lack of gravity as Laura and Felix finally confront the latter's own history is quite an achievement in itself. It's a brief conversation that kind of ambles along, is addressed with a shrug and a sigh, then is gone again in short order so that everyone can smile affectionately and be on their merry way. It ought to be a moment of emotional reckoning worthy of the stunning Mexican coastal setting. But it's not. Frustratingly, it leaves one with the sense that there wasn't any real point to the whole thing other than to spend time with good friends. And that's sometimes enough, by the way. But it could have been something so much grander and more resonant. 
Fortunately, at a whiff over 90 minutes, including credits, On the Rocks falls comfortably into our box labelled Movies That Do Not Outstay Their Welcome, and I appreciate that Coppola has respected my time. I'm not going to tell you not to watch this movie because I quite liked it in spite of its beach ball and a hurricane levels of emotional <laughs> emotional heft. But go in knowing that you'll neither laugh your ass off nor cry your eyes out. Yeah, it's very lightweight. It, it absolutely is. And frustration is a good word, Craig. That, you know, you kind of wish they... There's a few frustrations. Yeah, perhaps they should have explored the the impact of... Bill Murray's character's infidelity considerably mm-hmm. more, or possibly at all, rather than just paying it lip service. Although, curiously, in the moment, I didn't think about it so much. In fact, I didn't think about that so much until about two minutes ago when you spoke about it. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, there's some other frustrations too. It's like, yeah, actually, surprisingly for anybody with a surname Wyans, <laughs> Marlon Wyans is, is reasonably engaging in that. But it's kind of frustrating. It's like, is he supposed to be like a successful businessman? He's presumably not a stupid person, mm. but he's apparently completely innocent um, that there would be any reason his wife would consider the, the problem that he has women's belongings in his bag. It's like, really? He, he, he's that stupid? Mm. No. Mm. Like that, that, just, that seemed like it was convenient for the plot, which is a bit of a frustration, really. Uh, again, using that word frustration. However, I was basically there for the Bill Murray and the Bill Murray delivered. So I just thought he was on fine form. I found it incredibly entertaining. I just, I could have watched Bill Murray doing this basically forever. And yeah. Bill Murray's um, remembered more for this sort of role than his 70s and 80s comedies. I'm very much on board with that because I prefer him in these. 100%, yeah. So basically for me, this was the Bill Murray show. I mean, Rashida Jones, I like a lot. She's nice and there was good chemistry between her and Bill Murray. That is great. But I was here for Bill Murray. He delivered and I was very, very happy about that. So that's fine. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's very, very throwaway. I doubt I'd ever watch it again. Mm. But I'm glad to watch it this one time. I laughed quite a lot. Bill Murray, I could just watch endlessly. Um, which is why I'd recommend it. Yes, uh, I boringly also rather enjoyed this. It's a very likeable film. I think... I was only slightly disappointed in as much as I'd heard some people throwing about the inevitable comparisons to um, Lost in Translation just mm. purely because of the director and the cast. And it's, it's nothing like as emotionally complex or involving as that no, film it no, could no. be. No, nowhere near it. And uh, to be fair, it's not trying to be. Um, and it's got a script that is not particularly strong, but I still appreciate the way it was executed because you can see that there's only a, a couple of twists on the uh, screenwriting dials before you get into just like out and out ridiculous rom-com territory, which would have been you know, a disaster for, for it. Um, but the way it's kind of scaled back to something that's almost believable um, makes it kind of work and just fit into the kind of nice area of just being a Bill Murray experience and uh, mm. uh, Richard Jones is more than capable of uh, bouncing off that and providing the, in large parts the straight man to uh, Murray's antics and it works it's just nice, I'm not going to probably think about this film ever again um, but I very much enjoyed my time with it and it's I think I would recommend it to anyone it's a, it's a nice little likeable experience for 90 minutes as you say, doesn't outstay its welcome and it's perfectly enjoyable when you do so um, that's probably enough in this time <laughs> in this current time if I, if, yeah. I, if I have a problem it's that, it's that it does enough to get by and that and that's fine and it's perfectly enjoyable as it is it's just really frustrating to think that it could 
have been so much more. I feel like some of the conversations between uh, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray's characters only really need to go maybe a level deeper yeah. um, for this to be something much more substantially sort of emotionally um, pertinent. Less but, lightweight and flyaway. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. keep that comedic high, but then, yeah, as you say, just a, a level lower, just that, that yeah. kind of cuts in a bit. Yeah. And then you, I think you could have something potentially quite special because it would have so much more impact because... yeah. It never the goofiness it, of everything that Bill Murray's doing, like, it's verging on farce at times, which yeah. is not a genre I particularly care for. But sitting outside the club, spying on Marlon Wayans in a bright red Alfa Romeo <laughs> Spider yeah. from the nineteen sixties, and mm. apparently nobody noticed them. <laughs> it never, it never pins Felix down, and I think that's its, its biggest crime because essentially this is a film about. This film is driven because Rashida Jones's character Laura, um, quite early on, is sort of demonstrates that she sort of willing to put aside these fears that she has that her husband um, might be having an affair. She kind of dismisses them and it's the entire plot is driven actually by Felix and it's his cynicism of the situation presumably fueled by his own past that that propels things forward and I feel like he's never really held to account for that all that much um, and it really needs to pin that character down and there needs to be some sort of resolution there but then we never really get to understand at more than a surface level, the dynamic between uh, Felix and his daughter um, and how that relationship has, has shaped shaped her as well. And it feels like there's something much more substantial to be had if only Coppola was willing to scratch just a little bit below the surface of what she's, she's written. But at the level at which the film performs, like you say, like I'll happily spend as much time as you want in the company of Bill Murray doing this version of Bill Murray because it's just, uh, I don't know that the word's magnetic, but just really sort of affable and just just really, really good company. And, some, yeah. and sometimes that's enough. And it's, it's fine for it to be enough. It's just kind of frustrating that given... Some of the uh, some of the output that uh, has been forced upon us recently um, by current global circumstance. There's been a lot of disappointments, and so to see something like this come along that could have performed at a much higher bar than it does is is just a little bit of a letdown. But that is not to say that I didn't enjoy it. I still think it's a a pretty good film for what it is. Indeed, indeed. Let's move onwards to Peninsula. In Peninsula, Yong Sang-ho returns us to the Train to Busan universe, in uh, which its, it's follow-up uh, is set a few years after the zombification of Korea, with Korean refugees and other nations being not all that warmly received due to the typical prejudices against undead outbreaks. One such refugee is a marine captain, Jong Sok, played by Gang Dong Won, who managed to survive along with his brother-in-law, Kim Dong Yoon's Chul Min, although his sister and nephew did not. The pair of them are struggling with survivor's guilt and living borderline illegally in Hong Kong, where they soon become embroiled in a mafia scheme to slip back into Korea to quickly recover a truck full of cash and get out. This, as you will imagine, does not go quite to plan, with their team being attacked not just by zombies, but by a squad of rogue militia members who are surviving in the post-zombocalypse soul who mistake the truck for one containing food and other more useful supplies, given the situation. Chul Min is captured by the militia. Jung Sok is saved by the intervention of two resourceful youngsters, Juni and Yun Jin, who take him back to the hideout of their mother, Lee Jung Hyun's Min Jung, and grandfather Kwon Hae Ho's elder Kim. And at the risk of a slight oversimplification, uh, Jung Sok convinces them that recovering Chul Min and the truck will be all of their tickets off the peninsula. This plan also does not survive contact with the enemy, hence a whole bunch of chasing going on. 
Now, Peninsula has approximately twice the budget of Train to Busan, but unfortunately about half of the charm. Uh, That's not to say it's a completely unenjoyable film, as it's falling squarely into the fine but broadly unremarkable category, but almost all of the things that were cool about the predecessor, like the imaginative sequences and the claustrophobic confines of carriages, are replaced by CG-laden action set pieces that aren't all that interesting, and the characters are a lot blander and therefore harder to emphasise with here, even given their more tragic backstories. To be blunt, that's nigh on everything I've got to say about Peninsula. It's an enjoyable enough film to pass the time with, but I don't think it's doing anything that it sets out to do badly. But ultimately, it's quite characterless, and I doubt I shall remember any sequence from this next week, let alone next year. Four stars, says Paul Ross. But yeah, Peninsula is a spectacularly unnecessary film. But I went it. I was interested enough to watch it because I enjoyed Train to Busan quite a lot. And I guess again, I saw this like it's not doesn't really compare particularly to either Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead, but it felt like a continuation of the original film in the way that those were continuations of Night of the Living Dead, George mm. Romero films. But it's it's for the most part just a kind of meh action film where it yeah. really has none of the charm of Train to Busan. It has none of the the interesting dynamics the the real moral quandaries, the the fear, the contained environments. It's just, uh, it, it did very, very little for me. It's relying too heavily on things like, well, um, all of the humans have gone mad and humans are the enemies now. Well, we've never seen that one before. That's a new story well done. Um, Turns and, out, right, humans yeah. are the real monsters. Who would have predicted? <laughs> and the zombie Deep film, man. Scott, a zombie film too. It's breaking uncharted ground, <laughs> a new ground. And then, yeah, I feel as I like draw line a bit too much on like the cuteness of oh, look at the cute little girl and like uh, really, I was mm. again, that just felt felt very tired as well. I don't remember some of like the, the actual zombie details from Train to Busan, Scott. But did the zombies in that stand up as if they'd been pulled up by strings? Not to my recollection, no, they didn't do the um, grudge-style um, yeah. contortionism, no. Or or did their eyes slam open with the sound of a heavy door being shut? <laughs> Again, no, not to my recollection. And it's um, It doesn't really seem to know what its zombies are, what they can do. It hasn't kind of decided what the, the rules are for its zombies. Apparently, the virus or whatever it is allows them to be strapped into a truck and therefore not be able to eat anything for months but then still move <laughs> so minor issues like it hadn't really seemed to didn't seem to have established its rules particularly well so for the whole for me the whole film's kind of it's just kind of bland and anodyne it didn't mm. do a lot for me uh, it was unnecessary and also it's interesting that you mentioned that the Budget is so much bigger because, like, I'm wondering where they spent it then because there are extensive vehicle sequences in this and they are absolute garbage. The movement and the weight and the momentum of the cars moving while they're being chased by zombies or for a very long period, the cars of the soldiers, it's awful. Yeah, I think the problem is a $16 million budget still does not stretch into the amount of CG they've wanted to put into this film, which is a lot of it. I mean, any yeah. action film, action sequence, which is most of the film, um, <laughs> is tarted up with CG, and it's not... Yeah, I think it's just been a bit too dilute amongst the uh, <laughs> amongst the, the running time of it. Yeah, it's... 
It really it took me right out of it because quite near the start, there's a when uh, the guy's first rescued by the girls and you, your first kind of action sequence where the car's been used as a weapon against the zombies. And, oh, hmm. oh, oh no, oh no! I mean, it's quite easy to bandy about like the idea of like suggestion. It looks like a video game. It's like video games look better. Yeah, <laughs> stop doing video games as a service. So you, you'd made a, you've made this really realistic looking car model, and then you've, you know, animated on an Amiga or something. What is going on? It's, it looks so bad. Well, once once again, I haven't seen this film, but can I can I tell you what disappoints me most about it is that you describe those car sequences as garbage, Drew, rather than using the received pronunciation of fuds on film, which would be garbage. <laughs> I am so sorry. Must try harder. <laughs> Indeed. I know how to, I know how to kill a debate. <laughs> Where were you when Trump was speaking? <laughs> <laughs> I could have done so much more these last four years. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh dear. Shall we move on then to the eight hundred? As we approach the end of this 33rd month of 2020. That's <laughs> <laughs> about right, isn't it? <laughs> well, yes, going purely on feeling, yep. Yes, um, a surprising title sits atop the list of high, highest grossing films of the year. An increasingly irrelevant statistic, to be sure, but still of some interest. And that's Chinese war film The 800 which recounts the tale of the 452 defenders of the Hang warehouse in Shanghai in 1937 and their unlikely morale-boosting resistance against the Japanese Imperial Army. That discrepancy in figures is due to the soldiers' commanding officer, Xi Jinwan, providing an inflated number to the public in order not to tip off the Japanese to their true strength, though 800 hardly seems better than 452 compared to a Japanese division of 20,000 that had just helped to send 300,000 other Chinese soldiers into retreat. While I am familiar with the broad sweeps of the Second Sino-Japanese War, I am unfamiliar with this particular event, so everything I know about it I learned from this film, so necessarily have no take at all on its veracity, even if I take a fairly high base level of scepticism into anything produced in China about significant events in Chinese history. Caveat in place, let's return to the action. With Shanghai surrounded and the National Revolutionary Army fleeing with its tail between its legs, a handful of defenders remain in Shanghai, consisting of the 88th Division and a number of other soldiers scraped together from the scattered remains of other divisions, lucky enough not to have been executed for desertion. Setting aside the inherent immorality of executing deserters, especially in a conscripted army, it seems simply stupidly wasteful to kill soldiers when the army needs them as a resource. But, well, the 800 is another war film that neglects to confront this. Uh, these defenders, many of them apparently expected to be grateful that their country hasn't executed them and is instead allowing them to die for their country, are holed up in the warehouse, a former bank building with thick walls and stockpiles of food, medicine and ammunition. Situated as it is across the narrow Wusong River from the foreign concessions in Shanghai, it provides both an incredible visual juxtaposition, 
with the bullet-ridden building flanked on one side by the shelled and smoking ruins of the rest of Shanghai and on the other by European-style streets and glowing neon marquees. Uh, but its proximity also gives the inhabitants of the still pristine and shiny parts of the city the opportunity to watch the various assaults and stronghold as entertainment, because people are scum. <laughs> Beyond the unusual setting, though, things are fairly unremarkable, with your standard-for-the-genre mix of scarred and fearless veterans, callow youths who have no place near a battlefield, a coward or two, and an aspiring commander. Oh, and a horse called, what's that for, Mandarin for metaphor, probably. (laughs) This group must then repel a number of assaults, fight their own fear, etc, etc, etc. I'm not trying to dismiss the events the film depicts, it's just that a lot of it is, well, quite typical fare for a war film. What makes it interesting, for me anyway, is the setting, which I don't know an enormous amount about, nor that war. And I don't think Flowers of War, if either of you remember that, um, (laughs) educated me particularly well. And it also has a a naivete about the world in general that's uncommon to see depicted, including one former farmer who pleads for a description of the feeling of a woman's breast in the hand, or an officer who doesn't know where Shanghai is on a map. It's just as well the setting and those few scattered experiences were interesting to me, though, as... If I'd only been interested in character, I'd be, well, out of luck, as the film more or less forgot to include any. Oops. (laughs) There are a few faces you'll know under all the muck by the end of the action, but few, if any, rise to the level of character. And that's a pity. It's always difficult to judge performances in a language with which you're unfamiliar, but physically at least, it all seems pretty solid as opposed to the not-infrequent scenes in the area of the foreign concessions in Shanghai, where English is spoken, and generally, truly, truly terribly. <laughs> Though it may be that the director, Guan Hu, uh, for the same reasons of unfamiliarity, can't discern that. Continuing with the international flavour is the presence of London Divi Air, the tune for Danny Boy, first played by a soldier with a harmonica, and then a Chinese lyrical adaptation sung in both English and Mandarin by Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli and Chinese pop singer Na Ying. Do I have a point attached to that? Nope, not at all. Uh, It just struck me and I wanted to mention it and couldn't really (laughs) think where else to fit it in. So this is where it went. But I'll carry on. Or I won't, as I'm mostly done. It's a war film alone. It doesn't particularly stand out. Though it does look good, and I appreciate the practical work, including creating a set with 68 real buildings. What makes it worth checking out, though, is that unfamiliar setting that I mentioned. So you probably should. Yeah, the hundreds. Oh, I don't know. I, I I struggle to say I enjoyed it. I suppose on a number of levels I kind of appreciated it. It's It feels like a fairly standard sort of post-saving Private Ryan war film in the way that a lot of it's set up and the motions it's trying to provoke and all that. But it's it's difficult not to watch this with one eyebrow constantly raised. There's so many prisms in which you're viewing this, particularly the, the, the ongoing standoffs between China and Taiwan, which all this is intimately going to be tied into, and various other things that is going on with China. It's hard to watch this as anything other than blatant propaganda, which, to be fair, pretty much every war film is. So it's not exactly in bad company in that regard, but um, it's 
just ultimately not that enjoyable for for the reasons you mentioned as much as the characters are uh, rote and really difficult to, to get behind and really you know, remember who's who to be honest for a lot of it and uh, the situation I think you're right is probably the most interesting thing about it the, the, the contrast between having the untouched and opulent uh, city over the road in this war zone and another is makes for a huge striking contrast and visually uh, and all the uh, production level of it is incredibly high uh, it's up there with anything that Hollywood could produce and in that level it's all as good a war film as you could probably expect from from the, the scenario but I don't know it's two and a half hours and it maybe just seems to drag for quite a lot of that so there's only so many ways you can show the same attacks on a, on a one position being repulsed before it gets a little bit samey. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't hate it, but to be honest, it, it didn't make an awful lot of impression on me to, to to really tell you one way or the other about it. Yeah, I'm a little conflicted on this one. I, I don't have any particular reasons to hate it other than the just sort of general scepticism of it. <laughs> um, but uh, it's if it does wind up being, for whatever metric, the most successful film this year, it's it's no worse than many other most successful films of the year. So, uh, <laughs> Fast and Furious history. Seven, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Let's have a Marvel logo in front of us. So that's refreshing, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it's probably actually more worthy of your attention and time than anything that from the kind of uh, usual tentpole franchises. So, yeah, give it a look in if nothing else to broaden your horizons a little bit. But yes, I say I'm, I'm not completely up to date on the the, the history of it, but. It's easy to do. I mean, it's a World War Two film, and I mean, if if Nazis are the kind of villains you could love to hate, then the Japanese in World War Two were like <laughs> the level above of mustache mustache twiddling twiddling villainy. So that, yeah. it's That's it is thing. fine. Yeah. yeah, it's the Japanese are barely in it though. Um, it's mm-hmm. weird that the kind of and actually I was expecting it to be like particularly anti-Japanese um, with yeah. like you know typical. Um, Chinese Communist Party sabre rattling and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, and their fights with Japan over various islands in the South China Sea and stuff that was not just the Taiwan stuff there's a lot of stuff going on in that yeah. region just now but yeah the Japanese are barely a character because there's a it's like a one sneak attack by like five Japanese soldiers and that's about the only time other than the meeting with the, the Japanese captain later on that you really see them that other than that, they're mostly seen as like unseen threats. Like there was faces the Chinese soldiers in the assaults and a lot of sniper action. Yeah, but they're they're barely there. And it's like the whole film is just I enjoyed it. I think more than you did. Um, it certainly it, for its length, it's needing more material. What particularly needs though, I think, is under it's hard to understand how with the length of, <clears throat> it needs character. Yeah, absolutely. Like so, so the enemy's not a character, and then. The, the the faces you do get to learn they're not much more than like very quickly sketched caricatures of people rather than characters yeah and it feels like it's trying to say more like there's a you keep seeing this scene of this woman who's clearly a black marketeer she runs a casino in the foreign concession very kind of androgynously dressed the sort of thing you might expect to see in like cabaret you know, set in yeah. like pre-World War II Berlin or something. And you keep seeing her largely in profile. I don't think you see her face at all until right at the end. Like, oh, is this is this going to be significant or something? Like, oh, no, that went nowhere at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, she decided that 
she would stop hoarding the morphine she had for whatever reason and go and use it for people's <laughs> Is this supposed to be a morality lesson? Like, like actually, in, when it comes to the pens, the Chinese people were care about other people. Like, eh. And the same with the guy who's been selling information to the Japanese. Hmm. Like, he's, he's, I, I'm not buying that he suddenly came to the side of the right <laughs> because, like, people like that are scum. They're, they're not going to have changed like that. Uh, but also, uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating because. It, it's interesting because I said don't know much about that war, and that the first time you see the glowing neon lights when the soldiers are walking along the street and hiding from the Japanese and yeah. their own soldiers at that point, and then suddenly neon lights like you don't see that in war films because that doesn't yeah. happen in war. Yes. It's so strange. So it's, there are some interesting things there, but then it's like yeah, but I don't care about any of the people. Yeah, <laughs> you forgot to put people in that anybody would be interested in. Um, so kind of frustrating that I enjoyed it, but it's um, it's not brilliant, unfortunately. I've seen much worse, but um, yeah, I can't I can't give it a wholehearted recommendation. Yeah. No, and it's better than Flowers of War. Um, yes, the, the sole other film I think I've seen set in this particular war. The Flowers of War was that the Christian Bale one? Yeah, yeah with the uh, like shootout in the church at the end, set yeah, just yeah, before yeah. The, the siege of Nanjing, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So. We move on, Scott. Yagshimash. Yes, uh, Borat, subsequent to movie film. Uh, I mean, I, I thought I was giving myself the easy films to recap this time round. After all, for people <laughs> of a certain age, namely old geezers like us, I can simply say that the second Borat film is much the same shtick as the first, but the joke hasn't quite worn thin yet, and that's pretty much all the information that you need. Take the rest of the review off. The review off. Um, however, disturbing as it seems to be now, that first Borat film came out 14 years ago, and there's a possibly, possibility some of our listeners weren't born yet. Oy <laughs> So, That's pra- mental. <laughs> scary, isn't it? So perhaps a touch more detail is warranted. Sasha Baron Cohen's Borat is, an, of course, wildly fictional Kazakhstani journalist who was previously sent by his government to make some cultural er- learnings in the USA to make benefit glorious nation of Kazakhstan. It went poorly and <laughs> was in the main an excuse to interview some wildly racist bigots through the lens of Borat's own wild racist bigotry. And a good laugh was held by all us liberal bubble people safe in the knowledge that wildly racist bigots would never again wind up in positions of great power. Oy vey. So, much later, having humiliated humiliated glorious nation of Kazakhstan, Borat's been sentenced to hard labour for the past 1.4 decades, but he has an opportunity for redemption. The country's premier wants to bring glorious nation of Kazakhstan back to international prominence by make delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. In this instance, delivering the Kazakh Minister of Culture, Johnny the Monkey, to President Donald Trump. (laughs) That'll sort it out. McDonald's Trump. (laughs) So, off he goes, although sadly Johnny the Monkey does not survive shipping, having been eaten by a stowaway, Borat's female son, Maria (laughs) Maria Baklova's tutor. Given that Borat's face, moustache and mankini is still relatively well known, it's often falling to Baklova to provoke a number of the reactions and the various people they encounter on their way to giving a replacement gift to Tara himself to Rudy Giuliani in what was his most cringeworthy scene for about a week before that whole Four Seasons thing. 
Sorry. <laughs> the one shining beacon in all of this was <laughs> Four Seasons Landscaping. <laughs> Between the crematorium and the dildo shop. We, we could be at nuclear war a month from now. I don't care. That's, that's the funniest thing that's happened. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Uh, a lot like the first film, it's about half and half interviews with various types of dickwad, be that racist, sexist, or particularly given Borat's own views, anti-Semitic, and half advancing what passes for the linking narrative with some equally wild, outrageous statements going back and forth between Borat and Tutar, and also their government via fax, whose ultimate scheme for Borat is perhaps the best gag in the piece. Apart, of course, from the running of the American. <laughs> Uh, You're going to have to have a high tolerance for cringe comedy, as there's a hell of a lot of cringing involved here. I personally have always thought that the non-interview segments and this kind of thing in general are funnier than just exposing yet another Yahoo, and for me that's still the case here, apart perhaps from that one impossibly kind Jewish lady who is a saint. If I'm honest, I could have lived the rest of my life without seeing another Borat film, and while I enjoyed the sequel well enough and laughed a great deal, I could still stand to live the rest of my life without seeing another Borat film. I don't think the world was crying out for a sequel, but it's here, coming out of nowhere, and it's pretty funny, and I'm not going to complain about that. Yes, very much what you'd be expecting if you've seen the first film, and if not, uh, I'll probably give you a flavour of it. It is pretty funny, um, but by no means essential viewing, but yeah, I laughed quite a bit in it. Yeah, uh, I said, I, I actually rewatched the first Borat film again before watching this, um, okay. and it's still reasonably funny and, and very difficult to watch because it's so cringy. Uh, yeah. What I was struck by in the first film this time, though, was the artificiality of it. I mean, obviously there's a lot of setup, but I was so aware on this rewatch of the camera placements mm. and the fact that, you know, like someone, like Borgard would say something outrageous and you see him shot from one camera angle, then you see like him running away and like, but you're seeing the reverse camera angle and there's no camera person there. So like, they clearly shot that at least in two or three takes and like from different yeah. angles and stuff. And it, that bothered me because either it's, all artificial, which makes you doubt all of it, because the whole idea is like, his outrageous racism is kind of giving people leave to display their own outrageous racism, and then given they're basically given enough rope to hang themselves, yeah, uh, and show like just what hideous um, people they are. But so either it's all artificial, or all the people were stupid enough to wait around for him to get a second camera angle. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, I'm not sure I have a point there. Like, I just struck that. Why would you do that if you think you're being insulted by this person? Why would you hang around waiting for them to get a shot of a different angle? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the, the kind of that artificial reality, or the artificiality of it bothered me. It's like you see like reality TV shows and then they show you like the camera outside the door and then suddenly there's a camera angle from inside of the mm. person opening the door. It's like, you know, they've opened that door at least twice then and it just, it's so unreal. Um, mm. And I think if they, they'd tried to work around that, it would have been more satisfying. With that said, with that kind of in mind, I took that feeling going into the second one so I was a, a lot more critical from that point of view. Mm. And the problem with Borat 2 is that it feels like there's a lot more of that in the second one. They had a lot less to work with. And there are still bits where, for instance, like the, when Tutar has decided that she can actually touch herself in, in your general bathing suit area, <laughs> and she's telling this um, conservative women's group about it, and you kind of feel like they didn't get 
the reaction they expected or something. Mm. Those women, some of them seemed a bit sharp. Most of them are just polite and thinking this poor wee girl is like she's just a bit too innocent and stuff. Mm. Um, and then one woman was laughing. It's <laughs> like and an Asian woman there who's like finding this really funny. Like see, these are just people, and you've you've tried to outrage them, and like you know. I know where these po- people's politics aren't great, but they weren't actually doing anything objectionable. So mm. it, there's a bit of uh, quite a few scenes in Borat to feel much more laboured. Yeah, um, which is a pity because some of it's still funny. And there's still certain points where, like when Tutar and Borat go to the plastic surgeon, and it's horrendously inappropriate. Um, <laughs> but she starts talking about, "Would you make a sex attack on me?" and like. I'll accept from one part of it that he doesn't, because she's speaking in an accent, she's clearly a foreigner, that the doctor's not quite understanding what she means by that phrase. That mm. she doesn't mean rape, that she means you're just like, like, come on to me or something. But at the same time, he's quite happy saying to her, um, if your father wasn't here, yes, I'd come on to you at the very least. So it's like, it's disturbing. Mm-hmm. So there's stuff in there, but some of it just feels so much more forced. Yeah, and like the Rudy Giuliani thing is an absolute nothing burger. <laughs> that was talked up for like the good. I say it wasn't weeks because kind of the board film was more or less just dropped out of nowhere. Yeah, uh, but they were building up to that, and it's like, yeah, that nothing happened in that scene. It's like I have many, many problems with Rudolph Giuliani, and that scene isn't actually one of them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I suppose I was supposed to be outraged at. Rudy Giuliani was coming on to this child, but only the audience knows she's a child. In that interview with Rudolph Giuliani, she's acting like a woman. She looks like a woman and she's dressed like a woman. A woman too young for Rudolph Giuliani, certainly. So there are kind of ethical questions there, but it's nothing. Yeah. And that's the frustrating thing with the film is there's too much of that when there are bits where people are... Like again, like the first film, being given enough rope to hang themselves, um, that feel like they've given license to air their hideous views by Borat's own um, behaviour, and it's no, it's it's like the first film over, but not quite as good, and certainly more political. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's worth watching. It, it's still funny. It just. The original board I felt really outrageous. Hmm. And this just feels like it's it's trying to recapture lightning in a bottle and it doesn't quite succeed. Yeah. I've always had a bit of a problem with getting mentioned that is anything where they're making fun of people for no well explained reason tends to be the weakest part in any comedy. Like remember the surely remember the day to day. It's one of my favourite comedy series of all times. The weakest bit by any stretch of the imagination is where they go to the speak your brain segments where they're just interviewing some random person on the street asking Mm. leading questions and getting people to kind of eventually nod along with it and it's just not funny and these people didn't really do anything to deserve being made fun of it's punching down isn't it yeah Yeah. a lot of borat is the same and if he had presumably only just went to like republican party companies and julie and got something useful out of it then then that would be fine but a lot of it is you know not exactly making fun, but you're just joking around with a clerk that sends faxes. And I don't understand what the point of that is, and it's not particularly funny. The bits that actually were funny was things like Borat having to 
deal with his his world falling apart after finding out that the Holocaust did not in fact happen because someone <laughs> read it on Facebook. And, and that sort of level of outrageousness worked really well. I thought that was incredibly funny. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the running of the Americans bits, was genius. Yes. And th- that kind of stuff worked really well. The bits they had actually scripted, the bits that they wrote as comedy worked quite well. And the bits where they were trying to mine out of stuff there didn't quite really exist apart from certain angles when you squint at it and look funny is the weakest part of it. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's uh, what I'm really angling for is a Borat film that is just purely a Borat film written by <laughs> Baron Cohen and the rest and you know, an actual comedy film rather than a comedy film with an, Vox Pops interspersed throughout it. Um, yeah, I, I watched um, the Half in the Bag episode that covered Borat and Jay Bowman was making a particularly good point, a particularly good point about this one felt like it was it was much more created in the edit. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in the first film, Sasha Baron Cohen had just basically, I said, to use the phrase again, but had given people enough rope to hang themselves. He just kind of stuck the camera on them, the occasional encouraging <clears throat> comment here and there, but just the camera stays on them. Yeah, and making sure you've got enough coverage to, uh, yeah. Yeah, whereas the second one, it, it's so much more artificial because there are scenes where, like, you like, they reckoned that some of them had just like inserts with a standing later, like to make it look like Rudolph Giuliani was looking at this horrendously um, outdated women's handbook thing. Um, yeah. And then there are notable scenes where you're hearing audio, but you're not seeing the mouth move. So you can't know that it happened at the same time and it probably didn't. So it's taken out of context deliberately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that weakens your argument too, because if you're, for instance, trying to make someone in a powerful position like the the clown and chief's chief clown lawyer look terrible um then you kind of undermine your thing by making it seem so artificial and having to work so hard to get it yeah and you only need to do that once to achieve that as well yeah so it, it's still funny and it still has the same sort of cringe humor as the first film it's just it's not quite as successful um you know like if two borat films come along f- within 14 years so like, <laughs> yeah they're, they're not um oversaturating the market for you know i'm quite happy to watch another one just <laughs> he's now. not he's not the new marvel <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait for the next film in the borat cinematic universe <laughs> <laughs> shall we close up things with the trial of the chicago seven then in 1968 the us's democratic national convention was taking place in chicago and a number of protests were planned against the expected nomination of Hubert Humphrey for presidential candidate, a man vilified by anti-war protesters as being a Vietnam War apologist. Permission to protest was roundly denied by authorities, but protests happened anyway, in the way that protests will, with some ending in violence and conflict with the Chicago Police Department, and no small number of injuries. The film suggests and as I don't recall ever having heard of this case before this film, I'm learning all I know about the trial of the Chicago 7 from the trial of the Chicago 7, Uh, so please bear that in mind. Uh, The film suggests that the newly appointed US Attorney General wants to have a political trial and instructs hotshot federal prosecutor Richard Schultz, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, to mount a conspiracy case against against a selection of notable protest leaders among whom are Sasha Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman, Eddie Redmayne's Tom Hayden and John Carroll Lynch's David Dellinger. Charged alongside them, and for seemingly no reason except, you know, the glaringly obvious one, is also Black Panther leader Bobby Seale, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. With the help of Mark Rylance's lead defence attorney, William Kunstler, 
who, before watching this film, I had only ever heard of when a certain Mr. Jay Lebowski of Los Angeles informed the fascist police chief of Malibu that I want a f***ing lawyer, man. I want Bill Kunstler, man, or Ron Kuby. But it was apparently quite the big deal. The defendants must fight the government's case, massively hamstrung by Frank Langella's comically awful, prejudiced and willfully ignorant and or actually mentally unsound judge. Every time he spoke, I heard in my head Graham Chapman telling John Cleese's Black Knight, you're a loony. (laughs) The Trial of the Chicago 7 is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and The Trial of the Chicago 7 is very much an Aaron Sorkin film. And that means Aaron Sorkin dialogue. And I'm a big fan of Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. It's witty, intelligent, often scintillating, and usually entertaining. It's one of the primary reasons I found The Trial of the Chicago 7 so compelling. It is, though, too often too perfect. And that's a problem here, if a minor one. Appealing as it is to believe that these heroes of the right to protest could be so urbane, eloquent, or simply so smart-arsed all of the time, it all feels a little too polished, particularly for something as chaotic as anti-war demonstrations. A bigger issue with the film, though, is that it expends so much energy excoriating Frank Langella's Judge Hoffman, rightly so, as he was clearly incompetent, something attested to by a survey at one point in which 78% of Chicago attorneys who appeared before him having a hugely negative opinion, and paying little more than lip service to the true villains of the piece, US Attorney General John N. Mitchell and a Mr. R. M. Nixon, then of Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, (laughs) D.C.? Joseph Gordon-Levitt's prosecutor is also rather let off the hook, something perhaps exacerbated by Gordon-Levitt being such a likeable presence. But beyond my earlier concern of not knowing how accurate it is, due to lack of familiarity with the history, I have little negative to say. It's funny, smart and very well acted. Sasha Baron Cohen being a surprising standout, with his dubious accent more than compensated for by lively performance. Though I could have done with much, much more Michael Keaton. But I am left with a sense that Sorkin a clear lover of the law and the idea that impassioned, righteous rhetoric can save the day, witness particularly the climax of A Few Good Men, (laughs) is disappointed that he couldn't write the film in that way due to that not being how it actually happened, with five of the eight men put on trial being found guilty at the time of incitement to riot. A disappointing ending, perhaps, but a fun, albeit enraging, and in many ways timely ride. I, like you, normally like Aaron Sorkin's work. And this is the first time in a long time that I've watched the film and been so annoyed by it that I stopped watching it. <laughs> uh, when I first tried it a couple of weeks back, I, I sort of picked it back up again, rewatched it the other day just to get the full experience of it. But if Aaron Sorkin has a problem, it's that Aaron Sorkin wants to write films like Aaron Sorkin does. And basically anything that politics is getting remotely involved, what he wants to write is not a wide spectrum of characters. He wants every character to speak like Aaron Sorkin is talking directly to you. And this film feels like, what, two hours of Aaron Sorkin monologuing at you. And so if you're in the mood for that, it's actually quite fun. You know, he's good at writing dialogue and he's very, as you say, everything, it's all sharp, but he moves along a feral clip. And a lot of that can make it quite enjoyable. It is, however, in the wider context of this being based loosely on an actual trial with actual people on it 
absolute nonsense. You have things like an anarchist saying, I believe something like this is um, uh, Sasha Cohen's character, him again, uh, saying, no, I think the instruments of the state are a good thing. They're just it's just being held by incompetent people or something along those lines. Like those are not words that anarchists would say because of anarchism. It is <laughs> it is directly opposite to that. So again, it's just author insert all the way throughout it. It's author insert all the way down. And if you can get if you can get past that, which I struggled with the first time, I did a bit better second time round. I was in a slightly better mood, I think. It's it is witty and entertaining, and all the things that Drew's just saying there. Yes, but yeah, I. So yeah, don't go in expecting anything like reality. But if you just want an Aaron Sorkin film, then this is very much an Aaron Sorkin film, and I don't think it will turn on anyone to his style that is not already on board with that. Yes, it's hard to say a great deal more than that. If you're if you're in the mood for this kind of thing, then it will it will go down quite easily enough. Um, but yes, uh, it, it is it is very much Aaron Sorkin moulding the facts of the event to try and fit his narrative rather than anything even remotely sensibly based on the, the, the events it purports to cover. So, yeah. <laughs> I I see your tolerances, Scott, and I raise you, Eddie Redmayne. I see your, <laughs> I started watching this and then decided to stop watching it, and I raise you, I hovered my TV remote over the preview on Netflix, Eddie Redmayne started to talk, and I said off and watched <laughs> and watched something else instead can't be doing with it i am passingly familiar with the case of the chicago seven and even from the preview of this title and everything i read about it sort of uh come up i knew it was mostly bull- um and i have no interest in it whatsoever largely because of eddie redmayne but also because of historical inaccuracy so there you go <laughs> eddie redmayne's actually the real weak point in the cast i think uh, is he He's really not great. Colour me surprised. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne is the most superfluous actor on the face of the planet. I don't know what Eddie Redmayne is or does or what the case for him is. He's he's the new Julia Roberts for me. Um, <laughs> Sorry. He's he's quite affectless through much of it. Uh, mm. So, yeah, he's not bringing a lot of drive, but... Uh, Mark Rylance, I find really entertaining. I thought Sasha Baron Cohen was great. Yeah. I think maybe there's... Uh, it's an uh, element of ignorance is bliss here because I've never heard of this story at all. Had you not? No, not never. Um, hmm. And I have deliberately not sought out further information since. Yes. Because I feel that it, it, it might just uh, ring all of my bull detectors and like, hmm. I really enjoyed that film. That'll do hmm. me. <laughs> it, it's weird what's been changed. I mean, things like, you know, like towards the end of it, um, there's the character that winds up getting bound and gagged and sitting there, and it's Bobby treated, Seale, yeah. It's yep. a very shocking event, and it, it seems like that happens, and the case immediately goes off the rails and stops. But he was like that for days, mm-hmm. which, if anything, you would think would make it a more powerful statement. Yeah, that, that would, it's weird. Um, it's just an inhuman way to treat somebody. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I was I was going to say it's, if you take anything away from this, like further reading, just read anything about Bobby Seal. Basically, yeah, I know about Bobby Seal. Well, some of my managed to skip over his um, involvement in this. Uh, I'm not going that deep into my guess, but yeah, it's weird because that's like resolved within minutes of him being brought back out, bound and gagged. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, which is that's a strange move to make because yeah, that makes your case for how bad these people were worse. Yeah, uh, but so you <laughs> undercut it with that. But um, like I said I, I've not um, looked up anymore because yeah. you know. 
there's enough history in the rest of the world. I don't really want to know any more US history. Well, <laughs> I'm quite happy to, to, to remain ignorant. Thank you very much. To, to that point of why they wouldn't play that up so much, though, I think Scott has already answered that question, Drew, is that for every moment that Bobby Seal is bound and gagged, Bobby Seal is not speaking Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a the thing, though. Bobby Seal basically doesn't speak in the film at all, other than mm. to say, um, I've demanded my lawyer and he's not getting it. He's like, so the character isn't actually given much dialogue at all anyway. Huh. Yeah. So yeah, it's a nice theory, but actually the, the facts don't <laughs> support it, Craig, unfortunately, in this case. <laughs> oh dear. Yes, I think that will, I guess that will wrap us up for today then. Yes, so if you'd like to get in touch with us for any particular reason, you can do through email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or on the Twitters at fudsonfilm. Uh, but until next time, I will entreat you to take care of yourself and each other, and I shall see you next time. I'm sure that Drew and Craig will do too. Absolutely. Absolutely.